In the 1991 movie, The Fisher King, uh, Jeff Bridges plays this trash-talking radio host. And one day he's on the air and he makes this incredibly sarcastic, uh, contemptuous, prideful comment to this poor man who had called in. And he challenges him to do something. So this man goes out, he walks into a restaurant, and he shoots everyone and then kills himself. And it destroys Jeff Bridges. Uh, he begins wandering the streets. He turns to alcohol. He becomes an alcoholic. And while he's on the streets, uh, he runs into Robin Williams, uh, who plays this homeless man, uh, who, who basically has lost his mind because his wife was killed in that restaurant by the man who Jeff Bridges had set off on the radio. And Jeff Bridges tries everything to atone for his sin and his guilt. Uh, he tries to rescue Robin Williams off the street. He tries to get him out of his homelessness. He tries to, to, to give him a new life. He tries it all and it doesn't work. And he's plagued, he's plagued by this sin and by his, his guilty conscience. We all have guilt. may not be the same circumstance shows up in that movie, but we all have guilt. We have guilt over the way that we have treated someone and maybe used someone in a past relationship. We have guilt over our perceived failure or failures as a mom or a dad. We have guilt over a shady transaction or several shady transactions at work. We have guilt over sexual sin. We have guilt over a web of lies. We have guilt. And we have a guilty conscience. Verse 22 says it well. Verse 22 talks about or speaks of an evil conscience. An evil conscience, another way of saying a troubled conscience or a dirty conscience or a bad conscience. You say, what is, what is a conscience? A conscience is this. It's a self-evaluation of how fit you are for someone's presence. That's what conscience means. It's a self-evaluation of how fit you are for someone's presence. So are you fit for God's presence? Or are you fit for someone else's presence? An evil conscience or a bad conscience or a dirty conscience is the self-awareness that you're not fit for God's presence. Now, what do you do when you're left with a guilty conscience? How, how, how are you delivered from a guilty conscience? And there's three parts to this answer. It has to do with the gravity of sin, the power of the cross, and the depth of transformation. So let's start with the gravity of sin. In verse 1, you see that the, the writer of Hebrews is describing the activity that went on in the temple or the tabernacle. In fact, all of chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrew are describing how the tabernacle was a shadow of greater things to come. Now, the tabernacle was that, that uh, moving temple 
after God's people crossed the Red Sea and before the promised land in the desert, the tabernacle was that, that tent that moved with God's people. The temple is simply the, the permanent building, the, the building that was constructed after they got into the promised land. Now, what's the message of the temple? Right, what's the message of the tabernacle? And it's, it's twofold. First, and this is one we, you don't want to miss, just the sheer existence of something called a tabernacle or called a temple says this, that God longs to dwell with his people, that God wants to be with you. He wants to know you. That's the, the tabernacle. He came down. He said, my people have rebelled and they've walked away from me, but, but I want to be with my people. I love the people I created. That's the message. The first message of the temple or the tabernacle. John chapter one, it says, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there means literally tabernacled among us, right? That God came down. It's, it's, it's an announcement from God, the tabernacle that says, you have sinned and rebelled against me, but I have not and will not abandon you, although I could in complete fairness and justice. That's the message of the temple. That God loves you, loves his people, and wants to be with you. Now, why is that important? Because when we get into the second meaning of the temple and we start getting into the blood sacrifices, we're running into the very thing that modern people are turned off to Christianity by, blood sacrifices. So I want to step back before we get there and just see the meaning of the temple in the first place, that there is a creator God that wants to be with his people. That brings us to the second message of the temple. If you wanted to worship God or draw near to God, as verse one talks about, then you would have to pass uh, three altars as you moved in and through the tabernacle. So as you went into the tabernacle and moved towards the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was uh, and, and draw near to God, you would have to pass three altars. The first was the altar of burnt offering. And that is where animals were sacrificed, where blood was shed. This is what was signified by Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, right? So you'd walk in and, and there would be animals being sacrificed. It was a bloodshed. You move past that altar. The next one was the altar of, of, of incense. And that's where there would be incense rising, signifying the prayers of God's people rising. And what it was trying to communicate was a God who wanted a dwelling place where his people could approach him and pray to him. Then you move past that altar to the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. Had a gold slab on top called the mercy seat. And once a year, a high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, but he could not come in unless he had blood. And the blood would get sprinkled. And so the message of the temple was, there's a God who, who loves you and wants to be with you, but there's a big problem. And that is your sin, right? That God is holy, he's perfect, and that you're sinful. And so the second message of the temple, right? After God wants to be with you is you can't move into the presence of God or draw near to God until your sin is dealt with, until your sin is atoned for. It was a loud announcement. Now, why all the sacrifice? Why all the blood? Right? Why is there no forgiveness without the shedding of blood? 
What is the, what is the meaning of it? And, you know, as you, as you moved into the tabernacle, if you were uh, in the Old Testament people of God, as you moved into the tabernacle and you went past that first altar of, of burnt offering, you would smell death. You would smell death. You would smell blood. You would see blood. Why? Look at verses three to four. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the purpose of the sacrifices over and over were to be a reminder of sin, a reminder of the depth of the problem. In ancient times, blood had, had three negative meanings. Had three negative meanings. One is, it meant that there's, there's a problem, right? Gushing blood means there's a problem. Maybe even a mortal problem. Number two, blood meant guilt. Right? You've heard the phrase, right? You're, the blood's on your head or the blood is on your hands. Blood meant, it meant guilt, and the third thing that blood meant was stain, right? Blood stains. It, it, it's hard to get out. And so the bloody sacrifices were, be, were to be a reminder of, of three things in regards to this problem of sin. Number one, we've got a problem that runs deep, that's not easy to fix. Number two, we're guilty meaning that, that we're uh, responsible for the wrong in our world and we're responsible for the wrong in our lives. And, and number three, the, the stain of sin, the guilt of sin is impossible to remove by ourselves. Now, you, you can try all kinds of things to try to remove the guilt of sin, to, to clear your conscience, whether it's religious efforts or or moral efforts, or education to remove the guilt of sin. And it doesn't work. I mean, back to the original, the opening movie I referred to, right? Jeff Bridges, who caused this man to go to a restaurant and shoot everyone and shoot himself. And he runs into Robin Williams and his wife was killed in that restaurant. What does he do to try to atone for his sin? Get rid of his guilt. He tries to do good, right? He tries to help Robin Williams, get him off the street. And, and, and none of that works. So what does? How are you delivered from a guilty conscience? We move from the gravity of sin and your inability to clear your own conscience, your inability to remove the guilt, and that drives us into the power of the cross. Look at verse 12. It says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, right? The blood of bulls and goats and animals could not take away sin. I want you just to think for a second, the amount through the story of the Old Testament, the amount of animals that were sacrificed. In fact, if you've been uh, participating in community Bible reading, we've been in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings 8, after Solomon builds the temple and he dedicates it, it says at the dedication of the temple, 142,000 animals 
sheep and oxen were sacrificed. That's a dedication of the temple. One moment. Now spread that over the whole Old Testament and you have a lot of blood of animals. And what we read here is they could not take away sin. But the single offering of Jesus, his blood alone would take away sin. Now, this raises a couple of questions. Number one, why? Why the need for blood? And that leads to a second. Why couldn't God just forgive? Why why do we have to go through this whole bloody mess? I mean, listen, we live in a world right now, and the, the, the cry of our world is there's enough bloodshed, there's enough violence. Can we just talk about peace and love and kindness? Why does why can't God just forgive? Why the blood of his son? Why can't he just wipe it out? We've talked about the negative meaning of blood, but there's a, there's a positive meaning of blood that was in ancient times. And that is that blood represented life. That life was in the blood. That not even a, think about it, a child or a baby can't be born into this world without the shedding of blood and sometimes lots of blood, right? That, there, that, that, that blood represents life. But that still begs the question, okay, but, but why couldn't God forgive and just bypass the blood? Why couldn't he just forgive? Let me say it this way. If you have been, or let me start with this. All forgiveness requires suffering. Let me explain it this way. If someone has really wronged you, and I mean really wronged you, there's a real debt there, isn't there? And, and you have two options. Either, either you make that person pay down the debt, right, or you pay down the debt. If you make them pay down the debt, you can, you can physically hurt them, maybe draw blood. Um, you can slander and slice their reputation through gossip. Or you can play out their downfall and demise in your own heart, right? Where you're just, you're wishing their failure, you're rejoicing over their failure, right? All of those are ways that you get someone else to pay. For you to truly forgive someone, Because when that happens, when you use any three of those to get someone to pay, what happens is evil passes into your heart and you become cruel and you become hard. But to actually forgive someone and keep that evil from passing into your heart, which you pass on, to really forgive someone and not let the evil fall into your heart, it's agony. It's pain. It's it's painful. It's suffering to forgive someone and to not get them to pay. How much more for the God of perfect justice? You see, we've wronged him. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And there's two options. He either makes us pay or he suffers. And we know the answer is that he suffered. He sent his son Jesus to spill his blood on the cross, his only son. And by his blood spilling, by him paying down the debt, by him absorbing it, he removes your guilt and he brings you life. And so there's life through the blood of Jesus. Ernest Gordon spent three years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp 
in the Second World War. And after he got out of, he survived. And after he got out of the prison camp, he wrote a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. It was actually turned into a movie in 2001 called To End All Wars. And he describes in that book, one day after he and his fellow POWs had just spent a long, hard day at work. And at the end of that day, this is what he describes. That night when the tools were counted, a Japanese guard announced that one shovel was missing. One of the prisoners had stolen the shovel to sell on the black market, it was assumed. The crime was heinous, the guard railed. The perpetrator had maligned the emperor himself an act punishable by death. The guard lined up the men in the work party and demanded that whoever took the shovel confess. No one did. The guard ranted and screamed, denouncing the men for their wickedness. His rage reached a new level. All die, all die. The guard shrieked. He pointed his rifle at the crowd and set his finger on the trigger. The prisoners knew he was serious. Calmly, quietly, from the back of the work party, one solitary man stepped forward. I did it, the man said. The guard unleashed his fury on the man. In the front of the rest of the prisoners, a contingent of armed guards standing by, he beat the man bloody with the butt of his rifle, crushing the man's skull and killing him. Later, when the tools were counted again, it was found that all the shovels were there. The guard had miscounted. One man's innocent blood saved his fellow POWs. Jesus' innocent blood shed. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus' innocent blood shed has given you life has saved you. And you see there the power of self-sacrifice and the power of Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross. Now, it's not only that. The power of the, the, power of the cross is seen in self-sacrifice, but it's also seen in what was actually accomplished on the cross. When Jesus did die and spill his blood, what actually was accomplished? Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then to verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Have been sanctified, has perfected, that's past tense. And so what we learn is that Jesus' death on the cross actually did something. It actually accomplished salvation. It didn't just make salvation possible. It actually accomplished it. Faith is simply the instrument by which you access that salvation. Faith is not, and by faith I mean believing and trusting in Jesus. Faith does not add to your salvation or complete your salvation. Faith is simply the instrument that receives an already accomplished salvation. 
And you say, why does that matter? It has everything to do with delivering you from a guilty conscience. And let me explain that as we move into our third point with the, the depth of transformation. What is, what is the depth of transformation? Once you move from the gravity of sin and inability to, uh, to clear your own conscience of guilt and sin to the power of the cross and the self-sacrifice of Jesus, right? To pay down the debt of your sin. To what kind of transformation does this bring? Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now we see in that verse, you see two things that can keep you from drawing near to God. Two things, lack of assurance and a guilty or an evil or a guilty conscience. Now let's start, let's start with lack of assurance. The, the reason it is so important to understand that, that salvation was accomplished on the cross, that, that something actually was accomplished, is because if you don't understand that and somehow you believe that your response of faith completes salvation, or your response of faith adds to salvation, then you will struggle with assurance because you will always wonder, uh, did, I, did I pray the sinner's prayer well enough? Right? Or, or, or did I repent well enough? Or did I believe well enough? I had a conversation with someone recently who described during his teenage years, almost up to young adulthood, how he, he prayed the, the, the sinner's prayer, which is, I believe I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross and I commit my life to you. That's the basics of the sinner's prayer. He, he said, Keith, I prayed that hundreds of times, hoping that at least it would take once. See, when you understand that, that salvation is accomplished on the cross and that your response of faith is simply the instrument that receives that already accomplished salvation, it provides a tremendous amount of assurance. Tremendous amount of assurance. And it keeps you from that unhealthy introspection that actually keeps you from drawing near to God. Because you keep wondering, am I okay with God? And it keeps you from drawing near. Second thing that can keep you from drawing near to God is a guilty conscience. Now, that one is obvious on drawing near to God, a guilty conscience, because you've experienced this. A guilty conscience keeps you distant from God, but it also keeps you distant from one another. What's interesting to note in this passage is that the, the result of a clean conscience or a sprinkled conscience in verse 22, the result is not only drawing near to God, but verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 that talk about stirring up one another to love and to good works, uh, to encouraging one another. You see, so the guilty conscience, it keeps you distant from God. It also keeps you distant from one another. It keeps you from moving towards someone else in love. Let me explain by uh, another movie, Manchester by the Sea, a 2016 movie. Casey Affleck stars in. He plays the role of Lee Chandler, who's a quiet janitor, a quiet... Um, handyman in Massachusetts, but he's a depressed man, and, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a bitter man, and he's a lonely man, he's an angry man. Family friend, uh, by a family friend, he learns that his brother has had a massive heart attack, and before he can get to his brother, his brother dies, 
And so he's involved in planning the funeral for his brother and he finds out, he learns that his brother uh, named him as guardian of his teenage son, Patrick. And, 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 and Casey Affleck, or Lee, he, he's, he's resistant, absolutely resistant to taking in his nephew, his teenage nephew. Doesn't want to care for him. Doesn't want to take him in. Doesn't want to assume guardianship. And you go, what's going on here? The man's obviously troubled. And then he has flashbacks to earlier in his life when he was happily married with three children until his negligence while intoxicated, while drunk, led to a house fire that killed all three of his children. And you see this man who, because of that guilt, is unable to move forward to loving someone else, to taking in a teenage nephew, right? That's what guilt does. Guilt isolates you. It keeps you from moving into community and moving into, even in your marriage, to loving others. When you internalize guilt, it quickly moves to shame. See, guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about who you are. And when guilt is unresolved and you internalize it, it begins to form what, and who, what you know about yourself and who you believe yourself to be, which moves into shame. And shame moves you into hiding. Hiding from God, hiding from others. That that's what guilt can do when it's unresolved. Now you say, Keith, I, listen, I know how to deal with my guilt. I'm gonna do better next time. Right? I know I failed. I know I failed, but the way I'm gonna handle my guilt is next time I'm going to do better. Or it's, it's I'm gonna try harder. I've been lazy, I, I've failed, I've been lazy, I'm gonna work harder. Or it may be that you say, you know what, for some period of time, I'm going to take away some form of pleasure, right, to punish myself. And the reality is that none of those work to remove your guilt. None of them. They can't take away your guilt. Oh, they, they may mask your guilt for a period, make you feel a little bit better about your failure, but it'll never, never take it away. Listen, what I just named to you the examples of how we try to take away guilt, don't you see that's no different than the repeated sacrifices that Hebrews 10 is talking about? The repeated sacrifices, trying to remove guilt, trying to remove sin, they, they don't remove it. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can. That's the point of, of Hebrews, that, that religious observance, emulating Jesus, animal sacrifice, uh, paying penance, that all of those, don't remove guilt. They may, now listen, they may conform you to some ethical standard for a period of time. And if you're conformed to some ethical standard, that can, that can mask your guilt. That can, again, make you feel a little bit better, but it won't remove it. See, what Hebrews 10 is driving to is what we read and what the cross of Jesus Christ drives to when it comes to depth of transformation is described in verse 16. Look at it. Verse 16, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. See, that's not external confirmation or conforming to an external standard. What's described there is God describing a, an absolute change in your heart. Changes your heart, changes your desires, removes your guilt, 
clears your conscience deep within. That's the work. That's the power of the cross of what it can do and what it will do in your life. And as it changes your heart, the, the I have to obey God turns to and transforms into I get to obey God. This is summed up well in verse 14. And I, I love this verse because it captures so much in one tiny verse. Look at it again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or perfected. You, you hear that? By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected. Another way to say it is this. The cross of Jesus Christ transforms us subjectively because it saves us objectively. Say that again. The cross of Jesus Christ transforms us subjectively because it saves us objectively. Something happened when Jesus died. Objectively, salvation was accomplished. And because of that, then out of that, there's transformation on a deep level. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a, a British pastor, was a British pastor in the 20th century. Um, he used to ask people, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And a lot of times the answer he would get was, well, I'm trying. I'm trying. And his response to that would be, you have no idea what it means to be a Christian then. Because a Christian is a is a a new standing with God, a new standing, holy and blameless in Christ with your guilt removed, with your conscience clear. It's a standing that you, you receive by faith. And out of that is produced change. Out of that is, is change of living that flows out of that. My question to you this morning is, have you responded to Jesus in faith? Have you trusted him? Do you have a guilty conscience? Have you trusted Jesus? Do you understand he accomplished your salvation on the cross? If you will receive him by faith, then all your guilty stains will be removed. And then he'll write his law and his, and his very being on your heart and begin to change you. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the promise and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood that was shed and poured out for us. Father, I pray specifically for those in this room who are plagued by a guilty conscience, who look over their past and look at what they've done and can't forgive themselves and can't shake off the guilt and maybe have tried in every way to, to do something to mask it. I pray that you would bring them to the foot of the cross where they would see your innocent blood, Jesus, 
You who knew no sin took on sin and they would see you, Jesus, taking on their sin and paying it down and putting it to death. Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you for the Lord's Supper that is a reminder to us. It's a reminder of our sin, but it's a reminder beyond that of what Jesus Christ has done to pay for our sin. And so I pray as we come to the table this morning that you would spiritually, by your Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us and that you by your spirit spirit, would deal with our guilt and the guilt that sits in this room And that maybe, maybe, Father, there's someone here or a few here for the very first time that bow the knee and say, yes, I believe. Jesus, yes, I believe that you died for me and that I've been set free and that my guilt has been removed. Father, for those of us that maybe have been in Christ for many years, but are plagued with guilt and even step back into the fleshly ways of trying to remove it, would you by this meal assure us, assure us of what you've done to nail our guilt to the cross and to nail our sin to the cross, that we could be free and have a clear conscience so that we could draw near to you and near to others in loving others. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.